Hello, I'm Nikki Chadwick. What exactly is the circular economy and how can it make a massive contribution to saving our natural assets, minimising waste and pollution, and to tackling global challenges such as climate change and biodiversity loss? That's what we're going to find out. The circular economy is a different way of thinking about how we produce and consume, using resources more efficiently by using them more than once. In this episode, we're going to look at the environmental impact of food, how agriculture and food systems can be made more circular, and how the big brands, known as fast-moving consumer goods companies, or FMCGs, are an integral part of a transition to a circular economy. Joining me now is Shane Ward, who is Professor of Biosystems Engineering at University College in Dublin. Shane, thank you very much for joining us. First of all, can I ask you, what's the importance of food loss and waste reduction in terms of moving to a more circular system? Well, uh, thank you very much, Nikki. Delighted to have the opportunity uh, to speak with you. Regarding uh, the food chain, uh, in effect, it's all about efficiency. You have to look at the chain uh, from a full systems-based perspective. Uh, In other words, from production on the farm, through the retail, right through the consumer and beyond. But the fundamental issue is the objective is to produce feed and food as efficiently as possible using the minimum amount of inputs. In other words, you're getting more product for a lower level of inputs. So that's the overall objective ultimately. So in that regard, it's hugely important that all Uh, links in the chain from on the farm to the retailer to the consumer that the whole system operates as one in in a holistic sense uh, in a very efficient manner and for example um, if you look at the whole concept of circularity people generally think that if something is circular that's good well just because a product for example, a waste stream from uh, the food chain is recycled, recycled, that does not necessarily mean it's a good thing. Uh, For example, you may have a a waste stream that is uh, diverted in order to meet the requirements of some industry. And that industry uses this waste stream in an effective manner on the one hand, But obviously, the industry needs more and more product if it's going to expand its business uh, and therefore would increase the, as it were, the demand for this waste stream. And then over time, what happens is that rather than focusing on reducing that waste stream, the production system along the food chain would in fact uh, end up in a situation where the, the waste is somewhat ignored, it's not viewed as a waste anymore, it's viewed as an input to another system, and you end up with a less efficient overall system from start to finish. So the concept of circularity, while it's important, it's only relevant uh, within the overall framework of an efficient food chain, where everything is sort of uh, connected from the farm, 
through the retailer to the consumer and operates in a holistic sense in as efficient a way as possible. The, the key thing here is not alone do you produce the food on the farm as efficiently as possible, but of course you reduce the level of waste. But the danger, as I say, is that by reducing the level of waste, by offering uh, a valorization route or a route whereby the, a waste stream can be taken and processed, you are in effect running the risk of creating a separate market for that waste. But circularity per se really is only relevant in the context of overall system efficiency. You use the term valorization, which we often hear used in relation to the food industry. What does that actually mean and how can it help to increase circularity, resource efficiency and sustainability? Again, as I say, you've got to look at the system in a holistic sense. And the idea of valorization is that uh, inevitably, even with a highly efficient food chain system, there will be waste streams. But one should look on these waste streams in an idealized world as unavoidable waste, or if you like, they are byproducts of this system. And therefore, when there are byproducts, one can take those byproducts and look at opportunities to add value. So, for example, that may mean simply burning the product for energy. That's an added value. It will be at the lower end of the added value generally. Uh, you may process that waste stream to produce, for example, high-quality chemicals, biopharma uh, products, etc. So this process, in effect, is adding value to what in the past would have been a material that needed to be disposed of in some way. So that is very helpful. But as I pointed out earlier, the danger is that uh, you run the risk of creating a market for such a waste stream and hence um, reducing, in effect, the overall efficiency of the fundamental chain, uh, which is uh, the primary objective, of course, is to produce food, uh, not to produce uh, byproducts such as biopharma, etc. So what needs to change in production systems so that we are making them more efficient and so that plants are used in the most valuable way? Well, if you look at the, the production chain, first of all, it is uh, a complex chain that is actually, um, as it were, driven by the consumer. The farmer produces food, but the only reason the farmer produces food is because there's a market for that food, and that market is dictated ultimately by the consumer. So the, the nature, for example, of the contracts between farmers and supermarkets are dictated by what the consumer ultimately wants. And of course, what the consumer wants is variety, uh, the consumer wants safe food at the right price, and the farmer has to respond. Now, in terms of technologies, on-the-farm technologies have advanced considerably over the past decades, uh, with the result that on-farm systems generally are quite efficient, but there are new technologies coming on stream, such as precision agriculture, 
whereby uh, the farmer can use uh, satellite navigation systems, etc., to enhance the uh, productivity on the farm. Those systems are uh, developing very rapidly, and there's a general focus on bioefficiency in terms of production systems on the farm, uh, whereby, uh, for example, the use of uh, chemicals, agrochemicals, uh, fertilizers, etc., that they are used in an optimal way. So that's one element of it, but a key driver of even with highly efficient on-farm production, uh, the whole issue of food waste arising from uh, the demand of the consumer, the way the consumer uh, utilizes the food, and also the contracts between the supermarkets and the farmer are a key driver in this regard. For example, um, where supermarkets may dictate certain uh, quality standards with the farmer, uh, and if these standards are too rigorous, for example, and inappropriate, you may end up with the farmer discarding some of the produce simply because while it is edible and nutritious, it may not meet the quite exacting standards in some cases expected by the consumer. And the whole issue, for example, with the consumer about best before dates and when does one, when is it safe uh, to eat food in terms of best before date, uh, that's another issue that uh, really impacts quite significantly potentially on uh, the overall losses uh, beyond the farm gate at consumer, retail consumer level. So there are a lot of interacting aspects there um, that need to be brought together under sort of a an overall framework uh, that ensures that each element acts in consort right from the farm up to the consumer and beyond into this valorization phase as well. And with the consumer from what you've said, driving a lot of the way that um, food production continues. How important is it that we buy locally? We're often encouraged to reduce transport um, emissions, for instance, by buying from local producers. Is that going to make much of a difference? I think the, there's a real danger here that um, the wrong decisions could be made in that regard. Essentially, while buy local seems a good idea overall, Local produce will not feed the world. The expanding population uh, that is estimated to hit perhaps 10 billion by mid-century, it is simply not possible to feed uh, globally the, the, the demands of, of mankind based on, lo on, on local production. Secondly, um, in terms of overall production efficiency, it is quite obvious if you look at the uh, mixed diet uh, of peoples right across the world, that some produce um, are produced more efficiently uh, locally, others are not. So uh, what one really needs to do is to ensure that the mix of food products uh, on, on the market are grown in parts of the world and using farming systems that are appropriate, that are in the upper echelons of the efficiency ranking, as it were. Um, for example, if you look at my own country, Ireland, um, it is well recognised that beef and, and milk production are amongst, in terms of 
operational efficiency and production are amongst the uh, most efficient in the world. Um, so it makes perfect sense that Ireland should be a major supplier of beef and, um, and milk produce. Uh, and, and there are many other countries in the world who have got uh, particular produce that um, they, they are very good at, at producing, very efficient. So it makes perfect sense that um, one would uh, locate the production of particularly key food produce at various locations globally, and one uses international trade then to uh, deliver these ultimately to the consumer. Now, the problem with all of that, of course, as recent events have shown, is that, of course, there is a risk to security. So I think one has to be very careful in terms of having not just relying on one supplier, but having a whole network globally that one can move from one source to another as as needs uh, arise. For example, climate change issues may end up with certain countries running into difficulties one year because of some uh, catastrophic climatic event, and clearly one needs to be able to uh, divert uh, the sourcing of produce to another location so the, the way the global network of food suppliers operates, that's critical. But overall, I look on it this way. Uh, it's global with some local. And there's nothing wrong with local, but local in general is less efficient because it hasn't got scale and because it, also it cannot meet the uh, variety needed by the marketplace. The marketplace ultimately dictates. Mankind now requires quite a, 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 a complex and varied uh, diet, and the expectation is that produce will be available year-round in many markets, particularly in the Western world, but also uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, diets are changing very rapidly, and the, the citizen expects that the produce will be available for them. So you have to rely on global production. The concept of um, transport, transport in relative terms, uh, is a low energy. The true um, shipping systems, as a percentage of the overall energy input to production, it's far lower than the gains in efficiency achieved by producing the food in the most appropriate uh, location and using the most appropriate, most efficient production systems. Shane, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Joining me now is Maria Chiara Femiano from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, one of the most influential think tanks in the circular economy world. Maria Chiara is focused on the idea of redesigning food systems. Maria Chiara, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Can you tell me what is your particular focus? Good morning, Nikki. Thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to, to join you today. A pleasure uh, to be here. So at the Element Capital Foundation, we focus on, on circular economy and really the acceleration uh, of the transition to a circular economy. And when we're looking at food, we're really... We're really trying to see where the potential is to kickstart an important transformation at scale. The, the Food Initiative, which is one of the three initiatives we're working at the foundation, started in 2019, 
And we really be asking ourselves questions around what does it mean, a circular economy for food, which are the most influential um, actors that can, uh, that can really, you know, bring the change that we would like to see. And in the latest work uh, that we published uh, last year, we focused on our FMCGs. Uh, so really those, uh, those companies that produce uh, a lot of the products that we find uh, in our supermarkets and that we eat every day. And uh, basically, the idea that we that we developed is to see how to support businesses in um, in understanding how to put design at the core of their decision making when they create a product uh, for consumers to buy, uh, but also like what the rest of the ecosystems has to uh, has to do. So policymakers, uh, but also like what it, what what can be done at the farm level. Uh, I mean, we're having a bit of a holistic view with a focus on uh, on businesses and FMCGs. In terms of the food system, what is the difference between a linear economy and a circular economy? So, um, so today's food system is highly linear. So, based on a take make waste model that degrades and pollutes the environment and creates large amounts of waste, and our food system basically accounts for almost 40% of global uh, greenhouse gas emission and half of the human-induced pressures on biodiversity. And also approximately a third of the food that, um, that is produced is lost or wasted. So um, the idea of a circular economy goes around three basic principles of eliminating waste, circulating material and products, and regenerating nature. And starting on these three principles, we can start building a food system where producing food builds biodiversity and helps with emission reductions while providing economic opportunities and enhancing resilience for uh, the people and the planet. An important piece, of course, is the one on regenerating nature. So really like uh, producing food that rather than extracting the resources from nature actually gives back and so actually allows nature to thrive. And how engaged are businesses in this? Obviously, there is, there is consumer demand for things to change. But it's going to cost businesses to actually meet that demand. So how focused are they on what you're trying to get them to do? What we see is that, that there is uh, there is commitment because actually food is one of the is one of the sectors where the linear economy that is the current economy that we have that is based on uh, uh, on extraction and then production and then dispose actually is affected the food system. So, um, you know, uh, resilience uh, is an issue that businesses are, are concerned with uh, and also like the quality uh, of the production and the, the sustainability of their production is something that more and more um, is important to them. And so we are engaged with a number of partners at the Alamecasa Foundation really working on how, on how looking upstream at how creating products uh, that actually uh, are beneficial for, uh, for consumers, but also for biodiversity, for climate change, and for many of the challenges that we have today. So what sort of things are you hoping will develop in the food system? So um, we, we kind of like imagine some future products. So products that we would like to see in supermarkets and that consumers can choose. Uh, a strong idea we have is that, of course, consumers have a lot of power in their choice, but also we would like to see a future where the choice that we make when we go to the supermarket is the right one from, from the start. So we have developed this idea of uh, circular design for food, where we look at opportunities that companies can use uh, to really start designing uh, designing food products with the environment in mind and like not with extraction in mind, but really giving also back. So there are different opportunities um, 
uh, that we have um, that we have highlighted. And so the first one is about diverse uh, ingredients. So food designer can use a greater diversity of animal and plant varieties and species as ingredients. This helps to promote biodiversity, build resilience, and provide access to a wider range of food flavors and expand also the nutritional profile of diets. There's also the lower impact ones, uh, which are basically is a bit the quick win ingredient, if you want, because these are ingredients that are conventionally produced, but that have a lower environmental impact, such on climate and biodiversity. So transforming inedible food byproducts into new ingredients uh, that allows to make the most of existing agricultural land and then the inputs used there while creating new revenue streams for farmers and businesses. And then uh, a bit um, uh, on, on a general idea of producing regeneratively. So uh, regeneratively produced ingredients are those that are produced in ways that have positive outcomes for the nature, like healthy soil and green biodiversity. We had examples already of this, uh, but really in the modeling that we did in the report, we see that when these um, opportunities are combined is when you would really have uh, the strongest outcome in terms of environmental benefits. And how important is packaging as part of that um, circular economy, shift towards a circular economy in the food industry? That's something that tends to come straight to mind when people think about food producers being more responsible, being more sustainable. Packaging is also like a key element, uh, a key element in the picture. We have a whole uh, initiative working, particular plastic packaging, uh, and we have um, we've done a lot of research on basically showing that uh, alternatives exist and alternatives that are already on the market um, that basically reduce um, the amount of packaging, but still they they're able to maintain the quality of the food. Uh, but of course, the importance on this is to is to bring it at scale. So in the in the food redesign, we focus on the food part. But the piece on packaging is, of course, important to go uh, hand in hand. And how much is this driven by customer demand as well? We all know that um, people, there is rising consumer awareness and an interest in locally sourced food. But how can the consumer market actually drive a change towards sustainable food production? As I said before, uh, from our perspective, it's a bit more upstream if you want. So it's really like the policy context should be conducive. The businesses should be really engaged in creating products that, um, uh, that you know, already include these considerations when they arrive uh, into the supermarkets. The piece of the consumer is key. And of course, there are a lot of organizations that do brilliant work in really engaging and in really fostering uh, the the interest, and, and this is particularly visible with younger generations, it's different pieces that have to go uh, hand in hand. So uh, the change has to happen at different levels uh, in parallel. And talking about change, there is a, a big shift towards reduction in eating meat and consuming dairy products. How much is that a focus of what you're working on? Basically, our point is that it's not so much about of going completely plant-based, but of course, in the change, there is, um, uh, there is a need of, of increasing plant-based, but it's really about better meat that is, that is better produced uh, and possibly less meat. So, um, so if we look at the silver pasture example that, that we have um, in our report, we see that um, in a situation where you have cattle that grows together with uh, walnut trees, 
uh, then this gives uh, a diversification of produce to the farmer. It gives also a diversification of, of opportunities for products to be developed. So you would have a cheese that is a, a fully dairy cheese. You could have a cheese that is fully uh, walnut-based, and you could have one that is mixed. Uh, and this uh, can give, you know, like uh, also an impact from an economic perspective, but also from a, a reduction of emission perspective and also from a biodiversity uh, loss perspective. You're obviously so deeply embedded in in policy change and and encouraging the shift towards a circular economy and food. But are you very optimistic? I think there are elements for optimism in the sense that you have policies that have a vision for a very radical changed uh, food system. The implementation is where everything gets tricky. So while on the vision you have, and here I'm thinking at the global level, for instance, last year we had um, we had the food summit of the UN or uh, at the regional level, for instance, with, uh, with the European Union and the Farm to Fork policy, but also like some countries such as Denmark, for instance, that have like uh, great domestic policies. So basically the point is there are a lot of elements that point in that direction, but there are also a lot of pushback. So I want to be optimistic. I think there are elements for optimism, but really the, the devil is in the detail and in the implementation of it. And there it's really where uh, we have to focus our energy to, uh, to, really, to, to really push for the vision and the policies that are on the table to be fully implemented. Maria Chiara, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Joining me now is Elizabeth Turk, who is Director of the Economic Cooperation and Trade Division at UNECE. Elizabeth, thank you very much for speaking to us. Now, clearly the question of the circular economy in food is hugely complex. What are some of the key messages, takeaway messages for you from the insights that we've just heard? First of all, many thanks for having me. And I, I really enjoyed listening to both uh, Shane and, and Maria Chiara. And I would say they are the real experts uh, on the issues. You asked me about some of the, the takeaways. And I would say one of them, the first one is really the complexity of the issue. And then uh, there is also the complexity that comes from the relationship of agri-food and food loss to other issues. So the whole debate about by local or international, the role about international international transport, which I understand is quite limited, the importance of efficiency in terms of growing according to the geographical circumstances, the link to the plastic packaging debate. So I would say it's not only circularity that is complex in terms of agri-food, but also the relationship to many other important debates that we have out there. And I'd like to add a third level of complexity it's really the human level, because when we talk agri-food and food loss and waste, I think it has a strong emotional dimension of what we eat. We all care. And uh, just think about this whole discussion about plant-based as opposed to meat-based. So that's all very emotional, yeah? and so is the buying local aspect. So I would say that adds a further level of complexity to, to the whole issue. Now, a second stream of thought or takeaways for me was uh, really related to this definition of circularity. I was very intrigued by Sean's point about efficiency. And it's clear to me that he didn't only mean efficiency in terms of cost and finance, but efficiency in terms of reducing material input. So I found that a very, very kind of intriguing and important takeaway as well. And third, I got from the discussion really a sense of urgency. What I sensed is that this really applies to all of us, to all of us as consumers, 
as actors and, and we are called to also contribute to creating change. So when it comes to food, I think we really can do that with the support of the supermarkets and the agri-food companies. It's really our choices in the supermarket, in the market, in the restaurant, and our responsibilities as consumers to, to help address this urgency. So what tools do you think we need to, to ensure a transparent and efficient transition to a more circular system? When we are talking agri-food, we frequently talk about really sensitive products. So, um, for example, the experts, they call them highly perishable products. But if we imagine it, it's the berries in your breakfast muesli, the tomatoes in your summer salad. So they're really sensitive when it comes to trading them internationally and, and transporting them. So let's say the berries, they travel from Scandinavia to Geneva, but then there is a delay at the border, at the customs. So the berries get stuck, the berries are in line, the berries have to wait. We know it from the ones that we forget in the fridge, they turn bad. And ultimately, they have to be thrown away. They turn into waste, they turn into food loss and waste. So quick transit time and efficient transport it's really, really essential. And, and I think that's uh, one of the key aspects when we talk about the efficiency of value chains is this efficiency and, and speed and, and smoothness of transport. So from the perspective uh, of the work we do here at UNDCE, the efficient customs clearance and the efficient, the different modes of transport, imagine the road, the rail, the plane, the ship, that's all the different trans modes of transport through which our berries or tomatoes crisscross the planet. So it's really essential to avoid that um, uh, food gets stuck in these multimodal transport and trade chains. And I think that's a, a big step in terms of uh, reducing food waste and loss. Trade facilitation is really about streamlining, simplifying and harmonizing technical and legal procedures for trading across borders. So trade facilitation helps us to reduce both the trade cost and the trade time. And while trade facilitation applies to all products, so far more than agri-food, it's really particularly important for these sensitive, delicate, and perishable agri-food products that we are talking about right here. There are quite a lot of special trade facilitation measures for such perishable goods that's typically called green lanes, so kind of like helping us to make these sensitive products pass the borders faster. Now in UNDCE, what we do is we not only help countries do better in this regard, we also monitor where they are. And uh, it's quite interesting in, in our uh, biannual survey, the, the results from last year, we can see that these green lanes, this special treatment for perishable goods, it's quite well implemented in the UNDCE region. More than 85% of the countries have implemented it at least partially. And I would say some 40% have implemented the respective measures uh, fully. So I think that's, that's quite a good uh, news. What we really need also is investment and innovation. And uh, just think about the infrastructure investment that is needed to make uh, this trade in vegetables flow, the storing houses, the cold chains, the transport infrastructure. So uh, there is really a need to ensure that investment and financing gets moved and flows uh, to this sort of important infrastructure questions. And if you want to have efficient resource saving agricultural production, you really need investment to upgrade your production facilities, to bring them to sort of like the top-notch standards. And secondly, you also need innovation. 
And I think there is huge potential for innovation in agriculture, including digital solutions, helping to focus irrigation to avoid uh, wasting water and so forth. And I think here we are really back to also clear contribution to the circular economy. So I would say that's a lot of uh, aspects of what we can do to make agri-food chains more efficient. So it's consumers, businesses and policymakers who can all contribute to moving the food industry towards a circular economy. What do you think from UNEC's point of view as an international organisation, how can you support the changes that we need? Obviously, you've outlined improving standards, but what do you think are the most important things that UNEC and international organisations can do? You've mentioned already the, the important role of standards. And in UNECE, standardization is really one of our key areas of work. And I think it's, it's sort of like the, the, the bread and butter of, of UNECE. When, when we talk about uh, agricultural standards, let me also add a clarification here about what we are talking about. We are not talking about voluntary sustainability standards, such as organic vegetables or fair trade bananas. We are talking about agricultural quality standards that define minimum standards for commercial quality, for example, the fresh food and the vegetables. So in short, we are talking about standards that define that these fruits are fresh, clean, undamaged, that they follow certain criteria in terms of size, colors, and that they are labeled properly according to their origin. So in other words, some of the fruits and vegetables if they don't meet all these quality standards, they cannot be sold as, let's say, class one tomatoes or class one apples. And, and this definition of what is class one and what is class two, that, that originates from UNECE. Our standards help ensure that you're really getting tomatoes that are beautiful, big, round, uh, that are star class one tomatoes. And if they're, uh, at the same time, if they are good eating quality, but for example, if they don't have exactly the, the right sizes and the right colors, if they are too mixed in sizes, they can still be sold as class two. So this is the type of agricultural quality standards that are being negotiated in UNECE and that afterwards many of our member states, including the European Union, sort of like translate into their domestic laws and regulations. You may say those fruit and veggies that don't meet the standard they cannot be sold. In reality, there is much more to this. Just because a fruit does not follow a certain class or even standard, it doesn't mean it has to go to waste. They can all be sold in other classes. They could be sold on local markets. On, they could be sold to restaurants as ingredients. They could be sold to food process and many other uses. So from a food loss and waste perspective, uh, also if bad products travel together, side by side with good products that can lead to even more food loss and waste. So it's important that we really separate these different groups and, and classes of fruits. And that's what UNECE agricultural quality standards are about. If you have a mushy tomato that is taken out of the supply chain in the right moment in time, it can get a whole new life. It can go into a, a different value chain. It can be processed and used for another product. So in essence, we are actually preserving food. And I would say that's very good, both from a circular economy perspective, and that's also really important in terms of the current worries about a global food crisis. And finally, if, if food is not good enough for human consumption, it still can be used as animal feed, or it can be used for producing energy. 
So there are many different value chains that exist around food. And it's really a question of getting the right produce in the right value chain. And that's where the agri-food standards from UNSE uh, really have an important role to play. Elizabeth, thank you very much indeed for joining us. You've been listening to One World Zero Waste, the circular economy explained. Please use the hashtag OneWorldZeroWaste to share your thoughts and look out for another episode shortly. Thank you for listening.